0: This morning, I want to preach on all three of the readings. I'm, I'm a little preoccupied because I'm thinking about the instructed Eucharist again at 11. But here's something, something that influenced me uh, writing my sermon this week because of uh, uh, the Episcopalian 101 class. One of, the, one of the people who attend frequently asked me to talk about uh, the Bible as a narrative, and uh, I was reading the readings for, for this Sunday uh, with that in mind. When I was in seminary, uh, there was no emphasis at all on the narrative <coughs> character of the Bible. What I was taught is, uh, how, how, is this history or isn't it? And what are the tools that we have available to us that demonstrate to us uh, that it's historical or maybe or not, or fact or not? And for a lot of people, that meant that their their, uh, belief in Christianity was in jeopardy because they couldn't demonstrate that through the use of these tools. And in 1970, at the time I went to seminary, there was a book uh, written by a professor at Yale University named Hans Frey called The Eclipse of the Biblical Narrative. And this book uh, was saying what we have done in Christianity ha- has lost the narrative character of the scriptures. In other words, the truth of the Bible uh, can be found in the story. So I was reading these readings today, uh, thinking of them in, in terms of a story. It's kind of hard to do with Hebrews because it's a kind of tightly reasoned thing about Jesus as the high priest and what he did. But the story in 1 Samuel about Hannah uh, is important, and so is the reading from the Gospel, if we read it in a a narrative sense. And we do know something about the historical circumstances. But if the Bible is something that's living, then it has to be a narrative that the story bears some truth and utility for us living in 2015, not just in the past. So Christian people are interested in how this story has lived itself out in the past, in the present, and will in the future. So let me say some things that may not quite touch on the narrative character of this, but maybe when we get to the Gospel, what I've just said may be a little clearer. Uh, here's the story in 1 Samuel. The situation on the ground is, is that we have been living in the time of the judges in Israel, and we have now uh, another uh, figure that is about to be born who is very important, and that's Samuel. So this is the beginning of 1 Samuel. And Samuel is born to a woman named Hannah who hasn't been able to have children. And she's very uh, upset about this in spite of uh, how well she's been treated by her spouse. It still bothers her, and she's also uh, ridiculed and uh, made fun of by uh, some of the other women because she doesn't have any children. So as the story unfolds, uh, it is revealed to her. By the way, it's interesting. I was... You know, this is taking place at a shrine called Shiloh. Shiloh in the United States was the scene of one of the most appalling battles in the Civil War. And Shiloh means place of peace. In Hebrew, sort of interesting. And I remember in Ken Burns' Civil War series, when they talked about the Battle of Shiloh, they uh, ended by saying... It means place of peace. And here all this had gone on. An appalling carnage. In any case, uh, it's revealed to Hannah that she's going to conceive and have a, a, a baby, and it turns out that the baby is Samuel. She makes a promise that he'll be a Nazarite. Who were some of the, uh, uh, the. Samson was a Nazarite, you know. When his hair got cut, he lost all of his, his powers. So she, Nazarites were people who were set apart. And you'll discover that Samuel is going to hang around the uh, shrine precincts. And he's going to uh, have uh, God speak to him. And he's going to understand his vocation. And it's it's a good story. Remember that Christian people read those scriptures in some ways as predictive now when I was in seminary they sort of said well you can't do that because it didn't refer to the things that we're talking about but early Christians saw Jesus Christ on every page of the Old Testament so whether that was an appropriate way to understand it is another matter but they're thinking now in terms of the great sweep of the history of salvation And I'm thinking to myself, reading this passage, how now is this great story going to have any impact on me or on the community of faith? And what God did in this particular case was to make something barren genitive, that it is a story about how God is present to people who are experiencing lack in some form or another and that people of faith believe that that is a possibility. And Hannah's response in the canticle that we sung uh, is not one merely of saying, Oh good, my yearnings have been fulfilled. I have gotten what I want. But she understands herself in the role of the story of God's saving purposes for Israel. In the story. So we understand in some ways that there's a corporate uh, thing involved in our own personal circumstances and journeys when we think about what it is. Remember, too, that in ancient Israel, uh, the idea of me as an individual was not the same as it is now. Because we live in a culture that believes in the triumph of the autonomous self. That is the highest good in our culture, right? The autonomous self. So it's important to say something about that because you and I need to learn how to have the right kind of self-regard. And sometimes when we do, we will appear to be selfish to other people. But it's important for us also to understand that we give thanks and respond to the generosity that has been shown us as people because of God's abiding care and because of God's unconditional love, acceptance, and forgiveness. And in her way, Hannah understood that and praised God for it. Some of you may have recognized in the canticle that we saw echoes of the Magnificat. And so it's another example of how perhaps Luke took from those scriptures something and wrote a canticle that Mary speaks. My soul magnifies the Lord. My spirit rejoices in God, my Savior. So what has happened to her is something that she's celebrating but also understands it in terms of her role in the corporate whole. We could probably use some more of that in this culture, couldn't we? Caring about each other in an important sense and understanding that we're, we're all connected. We're not here just as sort of hermetically sealed units that uh, are marching through our lives. So in Hannah, uh, we need to say thank you for what we've learned about how God's uh, abundance has no limit. And sometimes when we think we're, we need stuff, and we've been, it's been a long time, that God is present to us in some way. And maybe we'll talk about that a little bit in the gospel. But I did want to say something about the reading from Hebrews, because it's very tightly written, and it's about Jesus as the priest and so forth. Uh, and it's an affirmation of what it says uh, in the traditional language in prayer books, A full, perfect, and sufficient sacrifice, oblation, and satisfaction for the sins of the whole world. That's what Anglican Christians have believed about what happens at the Eucharist. So the paradox here is that in Hebrews we're talking about the once and for all character of what Jesus did, but at the same time the obligation that is upon the people of God, the Christian church, to do this uh, uh, repeatedly on Sunday to celebrate the Eucharist to remember. So, when we think of Jesus as the pioneer and perfecter of our faith, his offering, once offered, is the source of salvation as we understand it, but also it's a template that we lay over our own lives of generosity and the willingness to extend. At uh, the Instructed Eucharist, I'm going to talk about the concept that's present in the eucharistic prayers of anamnesis that's a greek word which ne- means remembering and in the ancient world where these words in the hebrew word that pre- was its precursor doesn't have to do with just m- remembering it memorializing it it has to do with when you do that you make it present it's like at the passover it becomes a present reality So when the church speaks about the real presence at the Eucharist, it's speaking about that anamnetic, if that's a word, character to what it is that we do together. And one of the great advances of the renewal in the liturgy has been that we now understand that what happens there, the change that is affected, occurs as the result of the presence and the participation of the assembly All of us together, you know, Father Cockrell, Father Emerson, Father Brewer, we are the designated presiders in this undertaking. And so in the epistle to the letter to the Hebrews, they're talking about both the once and for all character and the necessity to repeat this as making present. So that's an important thing. Now we have a passage from Mark, which always makes me nervous, these kinds of things. This apocalyptic stuff. Now remember the great narrative. We're talking about apocalyptic stuff that's in the uh, Hebrew Bible, and we have uh, some of it in the uh, New Testament. And boy, in the book of Revelation, it's just absolutely... um, John Dominic Crossan... Called the book of Revelation the most violent book he had ever written in a religious context. You know? So today, we're in Mark's gospel, and uh, stepping away from the narrative for a moment, what I learned was that it's entirely possible that this gospel was written after something happened in history, which was the destruction of the temple in Jerusalem. So depending upon whether or not you accept this this way or not, Jesus said these things to the disciples and the apostles. And then, in the time of Mark, it had happened. So the early church looked at that as predictive of what was, what was occurring in the world. Apocalyptic stuff. Now what happened on Friday or t- Saturday... And now, we had a certain apocalyptic occurrence in Paris, and in the gospel it says this is going to this is the kind of thing that's going to continue and sort of the narrative of human beings interacting with one another so there are a number of Christians who believe this stuff is all a precursor to some gigantic mm-hmm. apocalyptic event where God ex- engages in a divine ethnic cleansing and then we have the world turning out the way it's supposed to be. Some Christian people have said when they come to passages like this, well, uh, the d- delay has been longer than expected, but they still continue to look for an apocalypse. The others, others, say, others simply say such things as um, it's a mystery beyond our understanding. That's my tendency sometimes, right? It's all very mysterious. Or others think that the apocalyptic expectation was part of a worldview that we no longer share and that we need to formulate some hope in a language and expectation that is appropriate to our own time, which I think makes a lot of sense. So I was thinking about this the great sweep, the great narrative. I personally believe that the Bible is a narrative that applies to my life. It's not just something that I'm reading externally. So it has to do both with the community's narrative and it has to do with the individual responding to it. So I think to myself, uh, where have been the times in my life where I've been upside down? Where are the times when I've experienced apocalyptic moments? I've had circumstances in my life that were quite upsetting and jarring, you know? And uh, they weren't merely just, oh, gosh, I'm stuck in traffic. You know, it's surprising how people get annoyed. I had a guy tell me the other day that he was in the car and he was going and somebody cut him off. And so he followed him. He was so angry that he followed him. I guess with the view that he was going to punch him out or do something like that, right? So those internal states, emotional, spiritual, and mental states, affect everybody, and we get ourselves all charged <coughs> up about a lot of that. But I'm talking about the things that, what do we do with, in Mark's case, the destruction of the temple, a bunch of people who, what they call ethne, who've started to get into Christianity. Those people are here. The others... The nations are here. They're not like us. What do we do about the destruction of the temple? What do we do about all of us being at sea? Jesus is gone. He's not here. How do we understand what it means that all the stuff that we've gone through, what do we do to make sense out of it? Because it's apocalyptic. It's an apocalyptic moment. That's why I happen, by the way, to believe that the book of Revelation already has happened. It's a story about what, ha- what happened. It's not something that's predicting the future. If you want to amaze your friends and keep it on ice, it's called preterism. That's the view of the book of Revelation, that the events described have already occurred in apocalyptic terms and in the symbolic terms that are used in the book of Revelation. So thinking about that, We need to say, well, is there ever going to be a time when there's some great event where it gets all put together? And all the conversation that I've had recently with you all in sermons about how I believe that what is going to happen is that we all are going to get to be together again. You know? It's sort of a paradox, you know? When we die, we go to God, we're safe. All the people we knew and loved who died before us are with God and they're safe. When we die, we may not see them then. They're in their own mone, their own room. But the promise is, is that there's going to come a time when we all come together and the world will be transformed. In the meantime, our response to the grand narrative is to figure out how we model what we believe are the highest and best ideals of the kingdom of God, where the law of love is the operative principle in all human interaction, where we really do believe when we see people, particularly difficult people, that they're made in the image and likeness of God. I never I've told you about this. I went when I was the rector of Christchurch, Sausalito, to Marin City, which is a little city next to Sausalito. It was established during World War II when a great many African Americans came up, particularly from West Texas, to build the Liberty ships. And the residents of Sausalito did not want these blacks to have a Sausalito address. And so they created a separate municipality called Marin City, which is its own thing now. So when we think about the idea of those people, you know, they were there and they were, they were in their own city. But we would say now, uh, and in this particular situation, Desmond Tutu came to visit Marin City and he came into the Marin City community. Ch- this is a little teeny uh, municipality and there are 28 churches in Marin City. It's lots of different kinds of churches. Uh, Desmond Tutu came into the community center and he spoke. This is a long time ago now. It's in the 1980s. And it was one of the most inspirational things I ever heard. And he didn't say one word about apartheid or South Africa. What he talked about was how each of us is valued by God. Each of us has a role to play. Each of us are participants in the sweeping narrative And he ended uh, towards the end of his talk by saying, if we believe in the tradition that I come from, that we genuflect before the Blessed Sacrament, we ought to genuflect to one another because the presence of God and Christ is in each of us. So whenever I read stuff like Mark and, oh, it's going to happen, that's what I think is how we can respond in some way. That in the here and now... That's what our, what our role is. That's what we're called to do. In big and small ways. Some of you may be, uh, be involved in heroic activities or somehow just by accident you get into one. But most of the time we reflect what I've just said in the ordinary and the commonplace. And I know that for me sometimes it's hard to do it with the people that you're closest to and you love the most. So that's the, that's the greatest challenge. So, this week, just think about where you situate yourself on the great narrative. In the great narrative. Amen.